Hello and welcome. I don't think I can handle much more of this. I think you underestimate yourself, Artemis. I think you ask too much of me, Bartleby. You'd be surprised how much discretion I have. To think you possess any kind of discretion is a surprise to me. That just goes to show how discreet my discretion is. That's not how this works. We're the Kinetic Paranormal Society, a pair of socks in a magic wardrobe traveling through time and space investigating the supernatural. You're about as discreet as a kazoo. You're listening to Metacosmos. Oh, I'm... I'm just disappointed. What? No, why? We've only just started. I... Last week, we were supposed to do my economics episode. Yeah, I remember. And you said that the the writers and actors' strike would be going and going and going. And and the week before that, I wanted to do an economics episode. Yeah, I remember. And you said the same thing the previous week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a bit, and it's a pretty good bit. And it's been going on for some time now. Yeah, because the strike's totally not going to end. And the strike ended. Wait, what? Yes, the. The writers, they worked out their agreement this last week. Oh, no. What about my bit? Didn't you even think about that? Oh, my... Artemis, what about the bit? What are we going to do? Bartleby, I wanted to talk about the writers and actors' strike and, and its, its place in economics while it was happening. You completely sabotaged my plans. Oh, well... Maybe I made them more timely? How's that? Well, now we can split the difference. What difference? Uh, the actors are still on strike, right? Oh, yes. And so, like, you know, we can kind of find a middle. But Bartleby, we just put out an episode on our podcast from the live stream from last week in which we're talking about the writer's strike still going. And it's over. Do you see, not only are we not topical, we are behind the times. Oh, no. This is even worse than losing our bit. This is quite a bit worse. Oh, man. So, yeah, I guess we, we really do have to split the difference. You better hurry up and get your economics episode out. But what do you want to say? Quick, say it. Hurry up. I, I already just started. Don't tell me to hurry up. You know, you know which but. We're behind the times. We got to catch up. So, um, how's the actors and writers strike have anything to do with economics? That's a really bad question, Bartleby. This is supposed to be a much more informative show, and you can't start with a premise like that. Well, here we are. Okay, well, first I think we should start with a history of the writers and actors strikes. Why does it matter that writers and actors strikes? Is there a bunch of, like, lopty do celebrities and like why do we care about how they're striking aren't they like super rich people oh hardly most actors that can barely get work let alone be considered super rich and their rights are just as much something to reserve the rights for okay yeah yeah yes and the writers as well the writers are very much very few writers in television and movies are are famous. Most people couldn't name more than a handful, and those are usually writer-directors. It's true. So you see, it's very important that we examine the cycle in which people in every workforce get their rights. But the thing that makes the, the movie industry particularly special is that it's a very 
how should I say it? It's very much out in the open. It's there for everyone to see. And it's kind of a part of the the cultural zeitgeist that we all are a part of when we acknowledge the film industry and, and of all of the industries that exist. It's probably the only one where the names of every single job goes rolling by on the screen at the end of a movie and telling you who it was that did every job. And that's something they won through their rights, through their unions. Oh, so it's like a really public-facing workforce. Exactly. And so, so by examining them as a workforce, then we can like kind of get an idea of what's happening to all the workforces that are happening in far less public places. Yes, precisely. And that is why we can examine the writers' strikes and the actors' strikes from decades past and see things that we can learn perhaps about the larger economy as a whole. So this is, this is not the first time the writers and the actors have gone on strike? Well, this is actually the second time they've done it at the same exact time. Oh, really? When was the first time? 1960. Ooh. The writers and the actors all went on strike in 1960? Yes. Why? Well, before about that time, most often when a movie was made, it would be shown in the theaters for months, sometimes over a year or years even, because once that movie were left theaters, it was gone, and, and they got all the money they could out of it for a while. And during that time, all of the people who worked on the movie would be able to get something called residuals. Ooh, is that like a, a goo that you need makeup remover to get off? No, no. It was like their, their payment for people still making money off the movie and the work they did. They continued to get paid for it. Ooh, what a sweet deal. Well, yes, but it's also like a fair deal because if you do work and someone's making money off work you once did, it's the least they could do is to keep giving you some of that money. Yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense. Yes. So that's how it was working in the entire Hollywood system for quite some time. And then television came about. Yeah, and then people had little tiny movie theaters in their homes. At first, there weren't any movies on the little tiny movie theaters in their homes. It was just television shows with commercials scattered throughout. But with time, these movies were having commercials scattered throughout them and shown on the television. Oh. So the movie theaters were making money off of that. Yeah. But the actors and the writers and everyone along the production line was kind of being, um, what's the word for it? I don't know, but I bet there's a lot of inappropriate phrases we could use. Precisely. So then the, the actors and the writers, they went on strike and they won themselves residuals for the showings on the television. So everything was good after that, and until now? No, no, no. In the 80s, they went on strike at separate times, but pretty much for the same rights. What were those rights? Well, something called VHS. What's that? Well, a VHS was a box of magnetic-stripped film that would record the movie on it and play on something called a VCR a lot of letters. What they stand for? No one really remembers. Oh. So, 
these machines they would play the movies on at home. And so then you can watch the movie anytime you wanted without the commercials. Wow. What advancements. Yes. And of course, the actors and the writers were not being paid for the sales of the VHS tape recordings. So they went on strike again. Yes, and they won themselves the rights to be paid for that. Huh. I think I'm noticing a trend. When's the next time they went on strike? Well, you probably are guessing. It was after the DVDs came out. They didn't just translate and say you get the same residuals? No, 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 no. It was a different technology. Every time a new technology comes out, it's considered experimental. It's experimental as it, like, bulldozes and steamrolls over all of the previous formats? Yes, yes, pretty much. Huh. That's really convenient for the studios that have to pay residuals for the previous formats. It certainly is. It's amazing how advancements in technology are booming until someone has to pay their fair share, and then they're really desperate to boom another advancement. It seems to be a going trend, yes. Wow. I wonder if, like, chasing after new technology this whole time is somehow, like, not actually advancing, like, the workers' rights. So now you see why I've been wanting to do an episode. Oh, yeah. What happened next? Well, the actors and the writers were on strike in 2007, separate times, and it led to the, uh... The winning of rights and, and DVDs and... Wait a minute, 2007? Wasn't streaming starting, like, right after that? Yes, precisely. OMG. And so, are they now, like, protesting to get their streaming rights? Yes, and not only that, this one is different. Why is it different? Well, this time, the actors and the writers, they're also trying to limit the use of AI and the reproduction of their work. And so that the... Studios can't just use a computer to reproduce the style of a writing or the visual image of an actor through the programming of a set of algorithms within a computer. Oh, man. Wow. So this is like a really futuristic version of a writer's and actor's strike. Yes. And also, of course, livable wages. Oh, livable wages? Like, what's that mean? Well. It's an amount of money that you can actually pay your bills with and afford to survive in the area you're working. The, the writers and the actors don't have that? No, no, very much not. There's quite a problem going on in many of the urban areas around the country, and it's probably most extreme in the L.A. region where the weather is reasonably fair when it's not flooding in the winter. What? Anyways... Let's not go into that. That's another episode we can do on economics. Oh, my goodness. Yes, this is an existential crisis indeed. It certainly is. So there's this big strike happening now, and there's no livable wages for writers and actors? Well, you may not realize it and be surprised to learn that many times when a writer is working on a probably big show, they might also be taking uh, advantages of welfare programs to allow them to eat. They're not being paid enough to eat? No. It's, like, again, it's a pretty extreme situation right now, and it's time for some rights to be worked out, because in the current conditions of streaming, the availability to put on movies in this format has led to a state 
in which nobody actually even knows how many downloads the shows they're starring in are even getting. So they aren't being paid for them. They're doing what now? The streaming services. They don't want to explain to the actors how much their shows are being watched. And so they definitely don't want to give them residuals for how much they're being watched because they don't even tell them how much the shows are or are not being watched. Same for the writers. Huh. To be more clear, the reason why they're not telling the actors and the writers how much is being streamed is because they're telling their shareholders and their investors quite a bit of numbers to tell them, oh, everything's going great in streaming and you all should invest in us and give us your money because everything's great over here. And they don't want to say what may or may not actually be the truth. That's, um, sounds something like a shell game. It's very much is like a show game because they'll just count a few seconds of watching a show and say, hope you watched that. But they don't want to tell the actors and the writers that someone watched a show for a few seconds and that now they're going to get paid for it. Though the writers and the actors would be very rich indeed, and maybe that wouldn't be fair for the studios. But if they watched the whole show, you'd think that the writers and the actors should have a share of that. Yeah, that's really distressing. I hope that they're... Did everything go well for the writer's strike? Let's save that for the end of the episode. Tantalizing. Yes, it would have been maybe more tantalizing if we had done this earlier. No, it wouldn't, because... No, everyone's listening to this episode in the future, Bart. It'll be a week from now. Everyone already knows what's happening. Oh. So it's not really tantalizing to the listeners? No, no, they already know. It's just tantalizing to me. I guess. So go on. What happens next? Well, you see, the writers and the actors, they want to know how much they're being watched. And the studios are telling their investors one thing. Yeah, yeah. And as you were saying, it's like a shell game. This doesn't sound sustainable. No, it's not. Sounds kind of like a con. It's like telling someone like, oh, this property is only worth this much to the government. You only can tax me for this much. But then telling somebody else, dude, this property's worth so much. This thing's worth so much. You want to invest in my property? Sounds like a crime. Yes, it's very much like that. Unfortunately, I don't think anyone's going to come and deal with this crime in the slightest. It's very common in the futures and the venture capitalism. What, what do you mean? Well, working up a lot of investment money and billowing up the value of one's company only gives the, the illusion that the markets are working, and it makes the people who are in the executive positions quite a bit of money. Huh. And this has actually been happening as a model ever since Jack Welch. Is he the juice guy? No, no, no. He was the CEO of GE in 1981 to 2001. And when he came on, there were 400,000 employees, and the company was one of the top 10 in the world at an evaluation of $14 billion. GE? General Electric. Ooh, like, like the Edison Company. Yes, this was the founding company of electricity. Yeah, it makes sense that it'd be valued like in the top 10. They created electricity. Hello. Wow, that's a pretty big deal. Yes, and they had many employees, and they were working on a very uh, grounded kind of giving to the employment first kind of uh, style of business model. Why is that? Well, sometime 
in between 1922 and 1945, while Gerald Swope was the CEO, the economy in the United States collapsed entirely. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And, well, it was seen that if you don't actually fortify your workforce with a sustainable amount of income, you are putting yourself and your economy and your community and everyone in a very vulnerable position. Because it's really only through creating a basket that we hold each other. And we weave a basket out of each other's efforts and as a community, doing jobs that reinforce one another interwoven throughout, that we create the community that holds us all and sustains us. Oh, wow. Artemis. That's really poetic. Yes. And it was seen during the collapse of the Great Depression that the way to bring it back was through FDR policies, which were to reinvigorate the workforce, stimulate the income, and bring everyone into a new level of personal well-being. Wow. What a cool thing. Yes. Well, they were trying to stop communism from taking over. A what? Yes, you see, after they, everyone turned to communism, they feared they, they would lose the war against communism. So they were like, we have to be sure to make sure that the workforce is plenty happy. Otherwise, they might turn into communists. What, what would turning into communists look like? Oh, that's where they strike away and, and take the means of production from the rich owning class and the wealthy are stripped away of their wealth and the royalty and everything is brought down to the level of everyone. Oh, that's some pretty, like, basic, like, extreme fairness. Well, until the people who are doing the stripping put themselves in charge, and it's not quite communism. turns into a form of authoritarianism. Maybe when, if you have, for instance, a narcissist in charge, it turns into fascism. Is that how that works? Yes, that's, that's the recipe. Whoa, okay. So they made sure that everyone had, like, lots of worker benefits to make sure that they didn't get themselves guillotined? Is that what you're telling me? Precisely. Okay, that makes sense. So you got to make sure that the people have more than just cake to make sure that you don't get guillotined. I think we already knew this one. Well, this was the time that it was discovered by the worker barons of the previous century. They were pretty exploitative as they were taking just a free roaming of the land and resources as they pleased. Uh, are we talking about the writers and actors strike? Most certainly indeed. Okay. So what about this guy? You said Gerald Swope? He was the CEO? Yes, and he was practicing something we'd call welfare capitalism. Ooh. What's that do? Is keep everyone well and fair? Pretty much, yes. And uh, in that world, uh, 37% of the profits of the company were going to workers' benefits. Workers' benefits? Yes. Wow. That uh, sounds like a good foundation. Well, it, it was, but it was disassembled by, of course, Jack Welch. The juice guy? No, he's not. It has nothing to do with the juice. Oh, okay. Sorry. But I can say he was doing some sort of juicing of his own, of bloodletting, if you will, of the GE Corporation. What? Well, he was taking the resources of the company and seeing it as we need maximum shareholder profits, and we slash anything we don't want 
So every year he would cut 10% of the jobs. So within two years, he'd slashed 72,000 jobs of that original 400,000. And that was just the beginning because, again, every year, another 10%, whatever was deemed to be the weakest link of the company was cut. And meanwhile, they were doing something called stock buybacks. Stock buybacks? Yes. Jack Welch had been part of a business roundtable, as they called themselves, and they were lobbying for years to create an environment in which a company could buy back its own stock. So to raise the value, limiting what it was on the market, and create a certain limited demand that made their stock suddenly seem more valuable. Oh, that's another shell game. You see where this is going then. Yes, so actually, Jack Welch, not the juice man. Not the juice man. He was, ah, how do I say this? He was kind of rigging the books, if you will, and making it always look at every quarter as if the maximum profit had been gained, no matter what was happening. So in the end, of course, it led to him to have incredible bonuses, which often came in the form of stock, which came in this whole new field and means of being a CEO, in which one was paid ridiculous sums at the success of slashing jobs underneath them and buying just subsidiaries. Oh, diversifying. We haven't even gotten into that. We really are talking about the writers and actors strike. Are you sure? Oh, we most certainly are. Are we sure this isn't a double episode? Bear with me now. Um, Artemis, I don't know. So, they went to acquire and diversify, selling off their weakest links and buying new ones. For instance, GE bought RCA. Like the remote control cars and electronics? Yes, but... They sold off everything except keeping NBC. Okay, so yeah, they bought that, and then what'd they do? Well, then they owned news stations, and they started making stock market stuff look great. Everyone wants to buy stock, and they popularized that kind of idea and mentality, and they started essentially convincing people of what they should be thinking. Uh, sounds like brainwashing. Yes. So, yes, they were influencing the general thought. So there you are, yeah. That brings us to where we are today because eventually many corporations would come to buy their own television stations and their own movie production studios. And we've seen in the last few decades this get to quite an extreme. Wait a second, hold on, hold on. We're going back to the movie theaters? What happened to GE? Like, it sounds like they were getting rich. Oh no, they collapsed just like, just a couple of years ago. Oh, like 20 years after Jack Welch left? Eventually the shells caught up with them. So, yes, and oh, about a year after he died, no less. Very ironic. Huh. And they were paying for all of his well-being before that. And just paying for all of his needs up, up until he died for the whole 20 years after he retired. Wow, that's a sweet deal. And ironically, he said that he cut the retirement programs for GE employees long ago in the 80s because it was just a nostalgia bit of frivolousness. And yet he had 20 years of living off the company. Huh. After he made hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions. I don't know. I didn't really count it. Huh. Wow. So the style of of being a CEO and running a company eventually caught up to all of Hollywood. And sometime not too long ago, AT&T... The the phone company? Yes. they, They bought the Time Warner company. Time Warner? Yes, where you see decades prior, the movie company of 
Warner Brothers had been bought by the company of Time, the magazine. So the magazine owned the movie company? And that was seen as fine at the time because it was a media buy. But AT&T? They were communications, so it was considered the same thing. Uh-huh. And they wanted to get into the streaming game. Streaming game. Okay. Because Netflix had been turning the model upside down of how it was that movies were distributed. And the movie theaters were like, ooh, we always exploit all of our actors and our writers every time a new technology comes out. And we don't think it's fair that the streaming company of Netflix suddenly emerges and they get to make all that profit that we normally make to exploit the writers and the actors after they've recently gotten their new deal from their last strike. Huh. So AT&T, they said, we're going into the streaming biz. Oh. Is this like, why is is this any different than any of the other ones in the past? Well, you see, in the past, there was a degree with which this was all regulated. In what way? Well, movie studios aren't allowed to own movie theaters. It creates a certain market forces that helps to create a healthy and sustainable market by not having them own their own movie theaters and in turn to then fill those theaters with their own material, they create for a more creative and healthier marketplace. Huh. You'll just have to trust me on this. Okay. You don't have any proof. Bear with me now. This is really running on long. So, as I was saying, these market forces, they all got disrupted when streaming services were doing everything they could to get the subscribers so they could then billow their numbers for investors and they were now following what would be more of called the Silicon Valley model of venture capitalism. And so it was really about creating the illusion of the extreme wealth because a venture capitalist is taking a big risk by putting money into these new technologies and projects which Netflix started off as. And now these giant studios were going to attempt to do the same thing. Wait a minute, but they're already like, these are like, seasoned heritage companies in the entertainment arts. How could they be saying that they're like experimental technologies? Well, now they're streaming. Huh. And so they would put large budgets into these extreme amounts of productions. And there's no way to value whether that production budget was necessary for that particular show because they don't actually study the way in which that show is billowing the numbers because they don't want, again, the actors to know whether their show was the reason for their success because then they would have a negotiation ability to try to get more payment for the shows that are more successful. So keeping that all under wraps was a very good way to get back to the old ways of making sure you weren't paying your actors and writers properly, which the studios have been practicing for decades. Wow. Okay, this is... This is something else. I don't know what to say. And so the the writers, did they get that they asked for? Did they get it? Yes. Most of the things, if every point actually that they asked for, they got a pretty good share as negotiations go. You ask for a little more than you think you can get. And they got a pretty good deal. They're now getting to have the, the AI. They can choose to use it in their own work and edit it and be credited and given their payment for it. And the studios aren't allowed to use the AI to supplant their work. And 
They made sure they're going to get minimum work hours for shows because that's apparently why so many of these shows, like the Star Trek shows I've been complaining about, they've not had a very much time to write them. So of course they're turning out the way they do. Hold on, stop. Let's not turn into Star Trek. We're running short on time. We gotta finish it. Wrap this, wrap this up. Okay, fine. Well, as I was saying, everything's been working out pretty well. And what about, what about the streaming numbers? Are they gonna get to see them? Yes. But secretly, they're not going to let everyone know what they are. Only going to let the Writers Guild, they're going to get a peek inside and see how everything's doing and make sure everyone's getting paid for that. Wow, that was a pretty successful strike. It was about 150 days. My goodness. Wow, I can't believe we didn't manage to milk that joke any longer. We should have started it sooner. I guess that's our own fault, isn't it? I guess it is. Wow, so... And the actors, they're still on strike? Yes, yes, they're still on strike. It's very likely that they're going to see something similar because usually that's how these things work out. And because the writers went on strike after the actors, the precedent was already being set by the writers and their contract was obviously going to take precedence. And really, honestly, what were the actors going to act out if there's no new writing? Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that, that's, that's pretty cool. They're going to work out soon. Yes. And before we sign off... Come on, we, got, we don't have much time. Before we sign off, I wanted to just highlight a very important issue. Uh, okay. The actors, as they've been protesting, they, being very charismatic actors as they are, have been bringing attention that the CEOs make exorbitant salaries to all of the employees at these companies. And it's really an important deal because it brings us to the topic of wage differentials. Wave differentials? Yes. That's the difference between the highest and lowest paid employee within a company. And so I want to propose that what we need in every company is an egalitarian wage differential. Egalitarian? Well, it just basically means fair. And we tether the maximum wage to the minimum wage within a percentile. Uh-huh. This is a lot for the end of an episode. Like, we're just going to have to cover this in its own episode. Oh, fine. Next week, right? Um, uh, sure, yeah. This is a new running bit, right? Bartleby. So, yeah. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. I'm Bartleby Nehigh, and I'm here with my brother, Artemis. Hello. I mean, goodbye. And you all have been great. This show is made possible with support from listeners like you. Everyone who goes to patreon.com slash bluefoot. Because this show is produced by Isaac Bluefoot. He's our producer, and he's fabulous, and we love him. He produces our other podcast, the Kinetic Paranormal Society Podcast. And you can listen to that wherever you listen to podcasts and find it at kineticparanormalsociety.com where you find all sorts of other cool stuff we do. You can also find Isaac's other podcast, Superman, Son of Al. It's the unauthorized biography of Clark Kent, and it's, like, legitimately amazing. Like, if you've ever listened to the My Blue Foot segments of our show, that's kind of, like, the style that it's done at. But, like, dude, you gotta check it out. It's super wosome. So, yeah. And uh, Metacosmos is also made possible with the support of Humble Hot Air. HumbleHotAir.org. It's like the coolest streaming station in Humble ever. And you gotta listen because there's always great material and stuff you can learn. 
and ways to grow from it all, and you're going to have a great time. Okay. And oh, get yourself a deck of Omen Quest cards at omenquestcards.com. They're magic. It's like, I just, I'm just going to say it like that. I don't know what else to tell you. So thank you all so much. You're wonderful. I think you're the best. And I love you. Do you think maybe we could just talk a little bit about wage differentials here in the after credits part? I know there's usually a little something here. It's way too short to go into it. 